All right, time to get the big brains on the show, starting with Enzio Von File, wealth investment strategist. Enzio, welcome back. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. We've also got Nick Morrow, lead for global trade. Uh, he's an analyst, Asia and Access China, at uh, my former employer in the 90s, the Economist Intelligence Unit. Good to have you on, Nick. Good morning. All right, guys. Uh, China was the big data uh, manufacturing purchase managers index. Actual actual manufacturing uh, also good. Uh, maybe reflecting, you know, kind of driving that sentiment. Uh, consumer activity, housing, all good. Uh, Enzio, what's your take on that? Well, two points. I don't think that China is a Lazarus, and what I mean by that is in the Bible, he's the guy who stands up suddenly after being dead. And it's all wonderful and tickety-boo. I don't think that works so well in China, where the economy has been back on its back for three years. It must have shrunken by about 20%. It's something that we call the base effect in the trade, which is that if you're measuring numbers coming off a very low base, like 50, then you can't it's very easy to come up with very large percentage gains if if the base is 100 the same 10% gives you a 10% gain if the 10 if the base is 50 you get a 20% gain so based on that these numbers are coming off very very weak bases and they all the glitters is not gold is all that i would say at this effect i think you get the message yeah i do uh, i mean are you are you in, okay so maybe people are building it up to more than it is yeah. but is it is it a is it a permanent change in direction? Yes. I mean, directionally, I'm totally for the economic time and change of changing to an economic, to, to a um, an excess supply of money and an excess demand for goods, which is good for markets. I'm just cautioning, though, that the road uphill will be quite rocky and stony, and you don't, all the glitters is not gold. Mm, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think a similar assessment from our side. Um, gen uh, definitely positive news. Um, so we saw a number of forecasting houses upgrade their forecasts um, as a result of the data. We've been expecting you know 5.7% growth this year. We upgraded a couple of weeks ago. Um, and now we're seeing other people kind of approach that same level. Um, and it is because of this this optimism and these, these signals. But just like Enzio said, um, achieving that growth of above 5%, even above 5.5%, that is going to be because a lot of the base effects that we saw last year. And we're expecting, I mean, this coming weekend is going to be the commencement of the Lianghui, the, uh, the two, uh, two, two sessions where we see China's policy setting uh, for the year. Uh, we're expecting a real GDP growth target of around 5.5%, but that actually reflects a degree of caution uh, in the economic outlook because 5.5% is going to be relatively easy to hit given those base effects. Yeah, um, and so um, even with kind of the genuinely positive signals we're seeing in the economy, it's not a fully positive story. We're still seeing some regional divergence, for example. Um, but I mean, I think the optimism is going to still drive a lot of you know, interest in the market. I mean, 5.5%, we're, we're off of the, uh, I guess we're well off the days when they used to cook, you know, I'm not going to say they cooked the books, <laughs> but I guess I just did. Uh, you know, we'd say 7.8% this year, 7.8% this year, you know, I mean, is, are those days gone? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know some forecasting houses, I think Goldman, for example, um, is expecting growth of above 6%, um, whether it's slightly above 6%, whether it's high 5 mm. Five to six. Um, again, this year is going to be a little bit distorted because of those statistical base effects. Uh, but when we consider the outlook through the remainder of the 2020s, it's going to be a story of deceleration. Um, I think this kind of golden age of you know very very high Chinese growth is likely over, and that's very much a property 
sector story. We're seeing a property sector rebound in big cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Guangzhou, etc. But that's the tier one story. The, the the story for the property markets in tier three and tier four cities in particular looks pretty dire. Um, and considering that that's really been a major driver of economic growth in China for a long time, for for you know decades, um, that's gone now, and, and that's going to be a big consideration when we think about the growth outlook for the remainder of the 2020s. Yeah, Enzio, sure. I, I I agree with with Nick, and I would just add to that that we always want to be careful, as I'm sure Nick and all of us are, with this false precision of these five, five point five, seven point eight, because China does have nine hundred million farmers. And I think it's a little bit tricky to get exact statistics off these poor souls living in the middle of the ditch somewhere out in the countryside. There was a fabulous book written by Scott Rosell from Stanford, Invisible China, which deals with this issue of the 900 million rural population. And that's always just worthwhile keeping in mind. Yeah, I know a lot of I, I, I write about the uh, China central bank digital currency. I have to keep reminding people: four hundred million people in China never been on the internet. You know, <laughs> so they, they can't go. They can't go fully digital everywhere all the time because of that effect you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, Chinese property stocks popping yesterday uh, on the Hang Seng. I guess everywhere else uh, on the back of the news. But I mean, as, as Nick says, tier one. I mean, Enzio, how important is the property sector now? Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a, 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 certainly not expert on anything. Certainly not on property. But I, I, I mean, it, it used to be thirty percent of the economy, and I'm sure it's still a very major chunk of it. You don't just turn these things off like you just can't turn off the fireplace. Um, but uh, I think that the with the local government debt and with the with the debt problems mounting in China on a corporate and a local government level. I think that there are going to be some some fairly squally winds coming up on that front. Mm, okay, so not out of the woods yet. No. Changing focus a little bit across the Pacific. I mean, we talked about Chinese manufacturing but uh, looking good. But American menu, uh, and maybe it's good because of the base effect, but American manufacturing not not as uh, not as not as rosy. Uh, what is your guys' take on that? Is it is it because they they didn't they didn't crater out so they don't get a, a base effect boost? Or is there something else going on there? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, just to go back to China really, really quickly. Um, so the you know PMI that we saw in January was at a time when COVID was running, still a little bit rampant, when Chinese New Year was happening, so factories were offline. Some of the rebound that we saw in February might just be because factories are coming back online, um, which you know isn't the full story, but it's partially the story. In the U.S., we don't have those dynamics. Um, instead, uh, there's still a pretty healthy degree of anxiety around the future direction of the economy. Um, I think what's been interesting is that consumer spending has remained pretty resilient. Um, but that's raised a lot of fears around the future of, you know, the uh, the Federal Reserve and the interest rate hikes that need to bring down inflation and essentially cool the overheated economy. I, I feel a lot of the story around this exuberance and the activity um, is very much consumer driven. It hasn't necessarily filtered into what's happened on the production side of things. Um, and so when we consider kind of the overall kind of global manufacturing landscape, um, I think uh, the outlook is still very, very mixed. Um, we're seeing kind of conflicting signals coming out of Asia, for example, conflicting signals coming out of Europe, and now conflicting, conflicting signals coming out of uh, North America, too. Um, and so I'd say we probably still need a couple of months to finally get a, a sense of where this is all going to settle in terms of the dust. Um, but the outlook for the U.S. that we have is still one that is relatively pessimistic. We're expecting stagnation this year, and a lot of this is tied to what's happening with the Federal Reserve. 
Yeah, I mean, Enzio, for sure, Federal Reserve, I know you're going to have something to say on that. Yeah, I, f- I fully agree with Nick that the economic time in America, contrary to China, keeps worsening. We've got an excess demand for money. They're beginning to tighten quantitatively only now, and uh, despite the rising rates, and an excess supply of goods. Um, and that's heralded by, by people like, highlighted by people like Walmart, after all, a pretty big retailer in the States, saying that they expect the second half of 23 to be a little bit dice here when it comes to inflation, but inflation, to, to consumption, excuse me, but inflation is getting stickier, and I would just point out on that fact that it's a lot of this is because of what Nick was alluding to is supply side shortages in America, like elsewhere, a lot of people just don't want to work. And because people don't want to work doing the medial stuff that we all did as students, waiters and bartenders and all that, um, the employers are loath to fire people because if things then do improve after the presidential elections 2024, for instance, then how are you going to hire these people back? So it's kind of stuck on a supply side thing, and that's going to keep inflation sticky. And I think that now that I'm looking at a Fed funds rate I have for a couple of years of 6%-ish or so, and that's going to really then then have lead to the stag, stagnation, next by stagflation, big deal um, in the U.S. economy. And I mean, I mean, America's the consumers have been surprisingly resilient. Uh, interesting piece out of the Economist today about the housing market in the U.S. saying essentially people that are lo- people that have got their low uh, interest mortgages mm. locked in, they don't want to move. They're not going anywhere because they don't want to have to you know re up at a much higher rate. So that constricts uh, supply on the market. But for that restricted supply, mortgage brokers are once again getting creative about how they can effectively lower rates uh, for American buyers. And so the housing market has been peculiarly uh, resilient, which again, given the demand for housing, it all fires back into you know inflation. Yeah. It's, it's the change in policy architecture, as Mohammed El-Aryan pointed out in the FT very, very eloquently two days ago. And I really think it's that kind of structural change that people can go through the back door and still lower your mortgage rates, despite, despite the Fed funds being at four and a half percent now, um, that people don't get fired, not because they're no good. It's just because I, wanted, I don't want to lose you on the next round when it goes back up again. Yeah. Nick? Um, I have to admit, this isn't an area of expertise for me, despite being an American. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll, I'll defer to Enzi on this. Well, I mean, okay, well, let, let's, uh, from America, let's have a look at Europe. Uh, you know, different things going on in different places. I, I guess the, U, the UK is starting to detach more and more. I mean, the big news was uh, we got inflation numbers from Germany, France, Spain, uh, inflation accelerating there, which, you know, is going to make the euro not happy. Um, but in the UK, you know, the, their housing market, as opposed to the Americans, is, is really cratering. 0.5% uh, month-on-month fall. Prices 3.7% lower than their peak in August. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, which one do you guys want to tackle first? Continental Europe, or do you want to tackle the UK and housing prices? Nick? I'll, I'll talk about Europe and, I guess, the UK as, as part of that, but from a, a broad perspective. Yeah. I think what you just said about kind of, I forget the word you actually used. Decoupling. But, um, decoupling. The decoupling yeah. of the UK and the European economies, it, it is becoming a bit more evident. Um, when we think about our own kind of growth outlook for Europe and the UK, um, the outlook for Europe has actually improved 
um, based on where we were a couple of months ago. I think there was a lot of fears around, um, you know, a recession over the winter. Um, I think natural gas storage ended up proving a bit more resilient than people had expected. That's partially due to climate factors. Um, but again, the European outlook has moved slightly more positive away from essentially recession towards stagnation, which, you know, we're not, no one's yes. you know, celebrating all that much about that, but mm. it, it's better than what it could have been. By contrast, the UK economy, the outlook there still looks pretty bleak. Um, it's one of the few economies in Europe that we are expecting to fall into a full year recession um, in 2023. Um, and I think, you know, that is very much just a story around Brexit, really. Um, and I think, um, you know, with that, you know, as the backdrop, all the decisions around cost of living, the monetary rate, the monetary decisions um, kind of dampening investment, private consumption, that's all feeding into it. Um, but it, it, it's kind of fascinating to see exactly that decoupling of the UK and the continental European economies. And that's something that's probably going to continue for um, quite some time. Yeah, Enzio? Yeah, again, I think the economic time in, in Europe, having lived there for so many years, also in the UK, is just pretty terrible. It's excess demand for money, excess supply of goods, and that's going to stay because structurally, again, the social welfare state has inhibits, the high tax rate inhibits entrepreneurship and people really wanting to make things happen. I mean, that's where America still, maybe in my day-to-days out in Oregon, New York, um, still has an, has an edge, um, but certainly not in Europe. And I think it frankly represents the biggest geopolitical risk in the world. Oof, okay, so that's a big one to watch out for. Guys, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, very quickly, are you, uh, I mean, Enzio, you're, you're advising people on where to put their money. Mm. Uh, are you telling people to play offense or defense right now? Are, they, are you picking up deals or are you uh, saying go with the safe stuff? I mean, we have this 5% one-year bond option now. Where are you? Are I you think saying? safe. But, I mean, you can also be prudent with places like China where the economic time is definitely improving. The trend is my friend kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But just don't go into these gizmo things that are going to make you a hot buck within two days. It it just doesn't work that way. People are not traders. Traders used to be my best clients. So I think it's China. I'm very leery on the U.S. because I think there's going to be some big thumping crash coming out of some corner that nobody knows in in this funny, phony financial system of theirs. Mm, okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take it there, Nick. You're you're not advising clients, so I'm not gonna put you in that same hot seat. But I <laughs> thank am, you. I am gonna thank you for coming on the show thank today. You. That's Nick Morrow, lead for global trade and analysts Asia and Access China at the Economist Intelligence Unit. First time I've been on the show with him. Uh, and also thanks to Enzio von File, our wealth investment strategist and a show regular. Quick check of.